Why did you stop me from killing her? Tell me while you're still alive. No, I was born with black skin. You were born with a black skin? Yes. Interesting. Someone must know something. I wish to learn. Read a book. I would rather have a good composition. Typical. Selfish. You think like a human. <laughs> I have enjoyed this conversation in English. Hello, my name is John and I'm a public historian and your Japanese history enabler. This is the show where I put a podcaster or podcasters through their paces as they discover Japanese history through the lens of popular media and film. And our guests this week are Ed and Solo from the Super Anime Podcast. <laughs> I love it. I, I love, love that. that. <laughs> Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to have you guys on. So what is your own history of watching anime and like anything Japanese? Uh, do you want to go first, Solo, or should I go first? Go on then, you go first. Go on then, you go on then. So, Solo's a talent. I'm just, I'm, so I actually grew up, and I've said this on the podcast, grew up in Ghana from the ages of five to nine. And I grew up with um, older cousins, um, three older cousins, all boys. And as you can imagine, they were all into like hip hop, rap, so on and so forth. And they were also into anime. So the, actually my first exposure to anime was um, Samurai X, um, also known as Rio Kenshin, and Ninja Scroll. Um, so clearly two adult films or adult animes, which a seven or uh, six-year-old should not be watching, but you know, <laughs> I started with those two. And then when I came back to London, um, got into the whole kind of Toonami, Dragon Ball Z, uh, Beyblade, Yu-Gi-Oh, all those different um, type of animes, as it were, as we were exposed to. So I wasn't, I wasn't as, I wasn't corrupted at a young age like Ed was. Um, I had, uh, I had a more traditional introduction to, uh, to anime and uh, Japanese culture and and the country itself. So typical, it's safe. So mine was a very typical one. So Dragon Ball Z at a young age was screaming in front of the TV, wishing I was a Super Saiyan. My younger brother watched, started watching uh, Naruto, so I was kind of watching that on and off. But then throughout this, when the tsunami kind of phase came through, that's when I kind of was like, oh, okay, I was exposed to Cowboy Bebop and Outlaw Star and that and Gundam and that's Gundam Wing. And that's where I was like, oh, this, whatever this stuff is, I really enjoy it. That was actually my, my uncle. So he introduced me to Akira. And that was, I didn't understand what the hell it was at the time. But then he also introduced me to Spirited Away. And is at that point I kind of fell full force back into all things anime and 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 like like a lot of lot of fans of anime, we also have a an interest into the into the Japanese culture. So I'm a big fan of uh, like Ronins and samurai and all of those type of things. So what do you say like from this kind of media? Do you have any idea of like Japanese history from it or from like outside it? I've probably picked up if there's like say like a pie, a piece of the pie. Hundred percent is the pie. I have probably picked up zero point five percent of Japanese of Japanese history. I know, obviously, there was Shogun, Shoguns, and and then obviously like Nobu, like people, little things like I know names like Nobunaga stuff like like, like that. I know vaguely around the the Japanese Chinese conflicts over history. That's it. 
names and vague things. That's it. <laughs> well, hopefully we can give you a little bit more of the pie today. How about you, Ed? Um, I would probably say Zolo's, what you said, 0.5? Yeah, 0.5. I'm 0.5. I'll, I'll probably say I'm 0.7, just, just slightly above. <laughs> well, you you have been to Japan, so that, that does count. That does oh, count. Oh, yeah, I, I have been to Japan, but it doesn't necessarily mean I know um, um, everything about it. And what piece of TV or film did you watch this week for the show? Princess Mononoke. Oh, Princess Mononoke. Yes, or Mononoke Hime in Japanese. Uh, it is the 1997 classic by Miyazaki Hayao, or Hayao Miyazaki, is the Western style. Miyazaki is the family name in that regard. It follows the tale of Ashitaka, a member of one of the last Emishi villages who is cursed by a rampaging boar spirit and goes in search of a cure. He comes to Iron Town, far away in the mountains, run by the tenacious Lady Eboshi, who is in constant conflict with the environment and the local spirits, including Moro, the wolf god, and its adopted child, San, the titular Princess Mononoke. The academics who will be joining us today are the wonderful Dr. Paula Curtis, a historian of pre-modern Japan and currently a Yanai Initiative postdoctoral fellow and lecturer with the Department of Asian Languages and Culture at UCLA. Her expertise focuses on metalcaster organizations from the 12th to 16th centuries and their relationships with elite institutions. She also does many projects based on the digital humanities, including the blog, What Can I Do with a BA in Japanese Studies? And also Caitlin Ugaretz, a specialist in contemporary Japanese religion, online sociality, popular culture, and new media studies, and PhD candidate in the Department of East Asian Language and Culture Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Her YouTube channel is Eat, Pray, Anime, where she explores history and culture behind Japanese popular media. She also wrote the popular series on Shinto for the YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast. This is the time of the show where I usually break down the period of the movie. It is the Mudomachi, which is from 1336 to 1573 CE. But it's an absolute mishmash of Japanese history. It contains overlap from loads of really earlier periods. So one of the earliest elements that we'll talk about later is from the Jomon period, which dates between 14,000 and 3000 BCE. Uh, with a lot of the elements taken from the Nara and Heian periods to 794 CE and 794 to 1185 CE, respectively. The, we're going to focus on the Muromachi. Uh, the name for that period comes from the family that controlled it, the Ashikaga, and the area of Kyoto they ruled Japan from. However, they didn't do a very good job, and their breakdown in the power of like centralized government uh, led to all the big civil wars of the Japanese fifteenth mm. and sixteenth century. Okay. So, but one of the big themes of it is obviously environmentalism. The reason that Miyazaki puts this in the Muromachi period is not because he loves the Muromachi period. It's because putting it in like a loose historical setting that was maybe anti to the Japan that was at the present. So we'll use a historic setting to focus on environmental messages now. In terms of the time period across the world, uh, this week, because it's so broad, we have 1336 to 1573. So outside of Japan, a, a little illness called the Black Death 
rages across India, North Africa, and all of Europe. And over 150 years later, Martin Luther nails his theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, leading to the beginning of the Reformation and the split of the Catholic Church. Uh, the colonization of the Americas begin, and the Ming Dynasty in China uh, comes to power after the fall of the Mongol-run Huan Dynasty before it. Wow. I did not realize that all of these things were kind of happening around in and around the same period that's a busy time period i would not want to go back in that time they, they can <laughs> as opposed to now <laughs> well yeah maybe maybe we can i'll just skip around a little bit of my time machine try and find a good period <laughs> the main themes for this week that we'll be breaking down are first japanese religion and the term of shinto then medieval metal casting and its environmental impact and then finally, the medieval minorities of Muromachi, Japan. And also, there will be a quiz at the end. Section 1. What is Shinto? If I said the word Shinto, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? You know what the big thing that comes to mind? And I don't even know if it's related. You know those red, the red gates? The red, that's the only thing that comes to mind. Those are Tory gates, and yes, they are from Shinto. It must be due to um, some kind of spiritual passing or something like that. Because when when he's mentioned the Tory gates, like, that was actually somewhere where we did go and visit when I was in Japan. Um, and I believe Japanese culture is very much heavenly and rooted in the sense of um, spirituality or spirits and, you know, looking after you and so on and so forth. So Japan has a weird relationship with religion. There are arguably three main religions in Japan, which is summed up by a common saying. It is the only country where you can be born Shinto, marry Christian, and die Buddhist. Mm. The majority of people in Japan would not say they are religious. Uh, here's a little bit more from Caitlin Ugaretz, who is an anthropologist of modern-day Shinto. I would define Shinto, broadly speaking, as a loosely organized group of ritual traditions that focus on the veneration or the worship of deities called kami. So um, Shinto actually means the way of the kami or the way of the gods, uh, much like Bushido is the way of the, the samurai or the bushi. So it's a little difficult to talk about Shinto. Is it a religion? Is it a series of traditions or a custom? Because it's in this uh, category of ways of being. So basically, Shinto is uh, the way of ritually interacting with these deities called Kami that live in the world with us in many different places, including um, in nature. So, for example, one of the places that Kami live are temples, which is why you have those Tory gates there, Ed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the yokai, and yeah. obviously, the yokai, obviously, they're kind of like, well, in my simple knowledge, it's like like demons, so to speak. Are they related to Shinto as well? So here is Kaylin Yugaretz on what the different levels of kami are. There's a common saying in Japan that there are yaoyorozu no kami-sama, or eight million myriad kami. And so this isn't literal that there are exactly eight million kami, give or take a few. But basically, it's saying that there are a ton of kami, way more than you could actually count. So <laughs> there is a, sort of a kami for everything and every place and every concern. 
Some would even go so far as to say there's a coming for every tree or blade of grass. Um, but the, the idea in Shinzo is that kami are everywhere and that it is a very difficult term to define because we're used to in Western contexts and religious studies talking about, you know, big G God or little G gods or, or deities. And kami is a, a difficult term. There are many different kinds of spiritual entities that can at one point have the label of kami and at another point um, lose the label of kami. So those like different things that can lose kami or gain kami, those are things like yokai. And this is an element they are very locally based. So I'm going to play the next clip from Caitlin. And then another important thing to know about kami is that they often have a local focus. So they might be tied to a particular place because they have a shrine there. And they are also tied to the people who live in that area. Um, this kind of kami is called an ujigami or a tutelary deity. And so if you live in a particular area, it would be common in Japan to pray to that deity to look over you because they're basically your divine supervisor in the area. So the, so that's kind of where you're at. Yokai, there are levels of them that can be kami. Uh, I talked to um, I, I talked to Caitlin about this, and essentially a lot of the time is it's whether they are worshipped or not. So if a yokai is worshipped, it can become a kami. If a kami is not worshipped, it then can become like a vengeful spirit. Tend, like the English terms we tend to put on things like this, like say like demon or devil are like, they come with a lot of baggage, like a lot of inherently negative baggage. Like a demon is always bad in English, whereas like, whereas a kami or a yokai, like they can be mischievous and they can do bad things, but they're not inherently mm. bad. This is very interesting. My mind is my mind is spinning right now. It's good in a good way. Whenever to so now again, I'm I'm casting my mind back to some of these these scenes in shows where the characters go up to a temple or go up to one of the Tory gates, um, and they like I don't know, they like ring a bell or they leave something there, and it's to kind of to to in remembrance or deference to a spirit. It was always like little side characters, little spirits here and there that are never really good or bad. They're just like just cheeky. Is that the is that yeah. kind of a callback to that this type of thing that you just said? Very much so. And one of the main things that is valued in Shinto, like why you'd end up going to those shrines, is due to one of its key elements, which is purity. This is Caitlin again talking about uh, the concept of purity and impurity. The kami are considered to be very pure beings and coming in contact with ritual impurity, coming into contact with impurity um, can either harm your relationship with the kami or provoke wrath and disastrous consequence. There are two types of impurity in Shinto. One is kegare. Kegare is kind of like dust. It just accumulates as a consequence of living in the world. You know, you can try to, you know, walk around and clean as much as possible, but there's always going to be some dust on the bottom of your shoes or on your windowsill. So it's important to ritually purify this part of just living in the world 
um, when you approach uh, the kami. And so there are many rituals throughout the year that help you to do that. The other kind of impurity is called sumi. Sometimes this is defined as sin, but that has a lot of you know, Christian baggage to it. Uh, I often um, define it as transgression or violation of a taboo. You've done something that is socially constructed as wrong that taints you basically until you purify yourself of that. So if you commit an offense against other people, or if you commit an offense against a kami, uh, for example, murder is a source of tsumi. Um, you should not murder people. But this is very much so if you think of tsumi, if you think of Ashitaka's kind of curse at the beginning, it is described as part of this kind of impurity. And therefore he is looking for these pure being, this kami, that might be able to purify him. Now, the problem is in the Muromachi period, we don't have a lot of knowledge about how it was practiced, because also at that time, Japan's other main religion is Buddhism, and Buddhism and Shinto kind of work together. They, they depending on when in history, they basically come together and come apart and come together, because there's no official like church of shinto there's no there's no like key holy book there are some books that detail like the important parts of it and who the important kami are like the nihon shoki uh, but those are mostly related to the emperor because the emperor is said to be related to the most important kami who if you're a fan of video games you might know kami as in street fighter kami it is more related also to the spirits in this one because one of the main kami we see are wolves. Are there any video games related to wolves? My mind is, no, my mind is drawing a blank. My mind is, oh God, this is gonna, this is gonna kill me. This is gonna kill me. Go on then, let me hear, let me hear. Uh, so we'll listen to Caitlin Ugaretz tell us a little bit about wolves in both Princess Mononoke and Okami. The video game Okami came out for the PS2 in 2006, and it's loosely based off of uh, the record of ancient matters, and the player plays the character of Amaterasu, the sun goddess and the imperial ancestress of Japan, um, who is in wolf form. And this is because the word for wolf is also kami. So there's kind of a resonance between divinity and wolves as kind of these powerful and mysterious creatures that live in the forest. And if you're thinking about you know, living in Japan in ancient times, this is definitely a sort of an, an awesome creature that you want to make sure you're not on their bad side and you're, you're living. Something to note specifically is that the spirits you see in Princess Mononoke, so like Moro and the boar spirit, etc., they are not based particularly on like any one kami. There is not like a direct analogy from the real world to them. Mm-hmm. They are there are lots of kami who would be wolves or would be deer, etc., but there is no like one-to-one within these okay. movies. This is this is taking influence from from all these pieces. Yeah. But the story that has been now put together is high, is is original. So there's taken influences, but because I I remember when I first watched um, Princess Mononoke, I assumed that it was it was just like a it was like a fairy tale. 
I yeah. said, oh, okay, so this is just like, a, is this a retelling? I'm more, I'm actually more impressed of the the combination of all these different ideas, if anything. You might have noticed that the, the name of the princess in inverted commas is San. She's not called Mononoke. And here is Caitlin Ugaretz on the meaning of the term Mononoke. Mononoke basically means like a creature. I, I prefer the term creature to monster because not all Mononoke are particularly um, dangerous or or evil. There are several terms that go for these creatures. Mononoke isn't the only one. You'll also often see um, Bakemono, um, but, and, and yokai used in general, but uh, Bakemono often refers to a supernatural creature that can transform Whereas uh, mononoke is a more general term for uh, supernatural creatures. So I think Neil Gaiman has talked about he tends to use the term like demon or devil, etc. But mononoke in Japanese, it's literally like creature princess. If, if anything, the important thing that's, that's sticking out to me about well, what I've just learned here is in, in the West, we've, we've, we've demonized certain things. So when you say something like monster, demon, creature, even if you used to say creature, you into your mind instantly veers towards the negative. So it's interesting that actually in in in, the, in Japanese historical culture, it doesn't it doesn't always mean that. And I'm hearing is it's it could it can be actually quite difficult trying to explain that to somebody who has who has no knowledge of Japanese history, trying to tell them how a demon could is not doesn't always mean it's a bad thing because there's now this whole other cultures where demon is is not something you mess around with so my friends are our backgrounds obviously we're, we're we're from west africa so our relation to to and just the history and through time and various things in history that have happened you say thing you say something like demon to like our parents and grandparents generation and that's a whole different meaning altogether so i find that quite interesting that that, that contrast I was quite surprised in terms of, again, like the different cultural um, nuances and different cultural changes. And so you might think after all this that this movie is, oh my God, it's a religious movie. Is it trying to convert us all to Shinto? Well, Miyazaki has said some things about that and here's Caitlin again telling us about it. But when we talk about religion in things like anime and manga and video games and media in general... It's important to remember um, the difference between authorial intent and the intent of the creation of the movie and also audience response. Now, if you ask me, is Princess Mononoke Shinto? I would say no, primarily because Miyazaki himself has been asked, you know, do you have um, a religious mission with your movies? Is, you know, your your main faith Shinto? Is that what you're trying to spread? And he explicitly says, no, um, I'm not practicing Shinto. Because when he was growing up at the, uh, in the early post-war period, Shinto was, you know, very intricately connected to um, the war effort and, and propaganda. And he is very um, cautious about organized religion. But 
he does identify with a general environmental spirituality and the idea that there are you know entities or spirits living in you know all places which a lot of audience members do identify as Shinto. I will quickly say that Shinto uh, basically becomes uh, linked to the Japanese government in the 1870s as part of the Meiji Restoration, and so which then becomes related to the Japanese Empire and the colonialism of Korea and Taiwan in the early 20th century. So Shinto becomes very highly connected to like colonialism and the uh, abuses. That the Japanese military government enforced on people. That's a, that's 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 an interesting take, actually, because uh, yeah, I'm guessing Miyazaki didn't want to have that association. Get 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 away from the politics and so on and so forth. But yeah. Section two: Medieval metal casting and its environmental impact. In Princess Mononoke, Ashitaka comes to this huge settlement. In Japanese, is Tataraba, which literally means like iron forging town, or Tataraba is a kind of forge. So it's like forge town, it's the same. For people who have not seen the movie or not seen it in a while, it's seen as this also kind of fortified almost town on the edge of a lake. Mm -hmm. And I talked to Dr. Paula Curtis about whether something like that would have been plausible. We do have kind of collective communities where you have, you know, large numbers of people, you have multiple kind of family units, you have a community that's very much spread out and is uh, working together. It's not necessarily this kind of walled armament that you see in Irontown, um, but there are many elements that, you know, are plausible in terms of the, the technologies that it's drawing on, right? And they do kind of mishmash time periods a little bit. Um, but you do see really fascinating details about what iron production was really like. So the main thing that Paula Kurtz is going to talk a bit more about is iron forging in Japan. The main way that places in the West associate like iron is mining, like you go and get it out the ground in big clumps. Whereas Japan doesn't really have a lot of that. So a lot of their focus is on collecting something called iron sand, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's sand that's high in iron, which is then forged into basically iron itself and then made into ingots. And you also, to you need a huge amount of resources to then basically develop this iron, to get to make this iron sand into something that's workable. And that therefore includes an awful lot of wood and an awful lot of charcoal. And here's Paul Curtis talking about deforestation. You know, you see uh, the, the intensive logging, which is a point of great conflict, right? If you are powering all of these gigantic furnaces to smelt the iron, then you need to create charcoal. You need massive amounts of charcoal. And so you need to burn down uh, and, and turn you know, your wood into charcoal and then use the charcoal to power the furnace. And then you're also you know, drawing in this iron sand and you have to refine it. You have to get all of these different elements just to create the ingots, right? They're not even uh, you know, necessarily doing lots of the next level of uh, casting or smithing work at this town, although you, you do kind of see it and there's sort of a elements of that there, but the majority of their income, as we can see, is actually coming from participating in local markets by making just the raw ingots for sale to trade for rice. 
as a lot of different like pre-modern societies, we're seeing that it's a lot of focus on trade and there's a lot of different studies that are going on in the moment. You know, actually people in the past were really bad at doing stuff to the environment. And here is Paul Curtis again on, on how big an environmental impact can be as far as my metal casters go, there were some settlements, certainly, um, that are larger and have a greater environmental impact as any kind of industrial development of any size would. But there are also itinerant casters um, who would have uh, bought those ingots and then said, okay, this is what I'm going to work with, right? And then, you know, set up a small furnace locally. So it, it really varies, but we do have some records um, there's a, a mid-hand period record, and I want to say that it's maybe the 11th or 12th century, but there's a petition from, um, I believe it's in the Toji temple documents, there's a petition from some commoners, uh, farmers in particular, who basically petition to the temple and say, we uh, have this plot of land, but there have been artisans working on it. And they say, I believe coppersmiths, and uh, makeup makers or something to that effect. And they basically say the land is ruined because there's been this chemical offput from, you know, this chemical output from their production methods. And they say, we can't farm on this. And so you can't tax us because we can't be as productive as we would be if these people had not been on the land. Basically, an awful lot of this production, it produces pollution. Mm. It does now and it does 700 years ago. Uh, that's so now it, this is adding some real context around that friction in the movie why the 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 natural ecosystem would react as it would as it did so yeah so you know what you know what this has been this has been really interesting because now i actually want to go back and like learn the the the, <laughs> the context and the history behind films before i watch them i can imagine taking so much away, so much more away from it this is really interesting. But one of the big things you also see in the movie is guns. What is your idea of, of historic guns? I know muskets. And I know putting the like cannonballs and putting what it gunpowder down the end of the barrel with that linen, stuffing it down with a long stick, then putting the little the balls or the, the bullets in there and then lighting the end of it. <laughs> that's, that's basically <laughs> Do you have any idea where the first guns were made? I want to say China. The first guns were made in China. They were then imported and lots of gunpowder was used during the Mongol invasions, uh, which used the support of China in Japan in the 13th century. But those are the first style of guns you see when the wolves are attacking mm -hmm. uh, the, them in the rain. These are something called a teppo. Uh, they're like the long tubes yeah. on sticks that they have to use under the umbrellas. The main ones we later see are much more towards the end of the Muromachi period. They are something called a Tanashigama, or the traditional like Japanese like musket. Uh, these first came to Japan from the Portuguese, and they mm. traded with them on the island of Tanashigama. So that's where the Japanese name for them comes from. Many Japanese craftsmen then like reverse engineered them, so the firearms became super common in warfare in japan at that time oh interesting interesting did not know that i i know that guns have been around for a while but it always it always surprises me just how old the use of of guns i mean because 
you can just people. I guess sometimes, from my perspective, anyway, you just kind of assume, okay, maybe like First World War, maybe a little bit before that. But then it's like, no, this is <laughs> this dates back a long, long, long time. So it's always it's always interesting to see, and the different forms as well, different forms they've taken. And of course, the the muskets that are shown are probably the later part of the Muromachi period, but they're still. They all, it's all technically like accurate, including down to some very, very little bits. Uh, so here is Paula Curtis talking about her favorite little bit of history they put in. When they enter Iron Town and they're kind of all running around going, this weird guy is here. There's this, uh, this pan shot that pauses and the accountants are writing on Moltcon slips. And I absolutely lost my mind. I'm sure that when I watched this 10 years ago, I didn't know what they were. And since then I've you know, taught classes on text and textuality in pre-modern Japan and had whole lessons on these small wooden slips on which people would you know, write tallies. They would write uh, the number of goods being sent from here or there. And there were all kinds of other uses for them too, but you know, these small reusable pieces of you know, bamboo or cryptomeria and there's two guys sitting around doing the books on Mokkan. And I was just like, oh my God, this is so exciting. Uh, so there are these little details that I definitely, the first time viewing it, and maybe even the second or third would not necessarily have caught. And the more I watch it, I think I'll, I'll continue to pick up these things over the years and be an absolute nerd uh, in the classroom or on Twitter as a result. Do you know, I, I would have, I would not have noticed that in the film, to be honest. No. So that's no. that's a good eye. But there's just so many details in this in this movie and in so much more of Miyazaki's work that it's it's just such fun to watch. So if you have a historian or Japanese history nerd, I go and watch it with them because you'll find something to love. Section three: The Medieval Minorities of Princess Mononoke. So Miyazaki, in a lot of his media, likes to focus on, say, the social history of Japan. Rather than looking at warlords, you look at individuals just trying to make their way. Well, this is based on a very specific historian who I talked to Dr. Paul Curtis about. One of the things in the development of Mononoke Hime was that Miyazaki drew on the work of Amino Yoshihiko, who is a fa very famous social historian of Japan. And uh, if you go into, you know, a Japanese bookstore, there's, I don't know if this is still true today, but it used to be the case that there was an Amino section because his work was extremely influential and he wrote in a way that was very accessible uh, to a popular audience. And so mm -hmm. when, you know, Miyazaki drew very heavily on his work, which as someone who also works a lot rooted in his research, you mm -hmm. can very much see it in Mononoke Hime. And you can see the way that he's thinking about marginalized people, about everyday people, and about the very complex social interactions that are taking place. He's not just focused on elite histories of giant institutions and big men. And I, I think that's quite characteristic of Miyazaki and the way he does his, his films, and whether it be the details or whether he be looking at um, certain things and then including them into um, his films, as it were. Someone who is um, very much privy to these little details will start appreciating. If anything, you have a, I have a growing respect for Miyazaki and what he's done um, in this film particularly, mm. and in other films, because I, I want to go back and understand what, he's, what he was... Because I have a basically I have a better understanding of the point he's trying to get across and the, the actual care and detail mm. that he puts into his stories. 
and that 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 means that I have a great appreciation for it now. If people like to read like accessible history books, I recommend uh, Amino Yoshihiko's. It, the English title is Rethinking Japanese History. It's an amazingly like rich book that looks at the cultural history of Japan. It has, looks at very different areas because, for example, like if you think of the people who would be traditionally crucial in like history, say the daimyo, the lord, or the emperor, we never see them on screen. Mm. And here is Paula Curtis talking a bit about how power, how power from these unseen people might have worked at the time. It's one of my favorite moments. I, I pointed this out to the friend I was rewatching it with. Uh, this week, I said, well, look at this. There's a letter that Lady Eboshi gets, uh, you know, from this representative, this emissary of the emperor. And she kind of says, why the hell should I care about this document? Right? Because what does the emperor mean to someone like me all the way over here, which is kind of very emblematic of uh, a lot of the social history research of the medieval period that said, okay, we've spent decades talking about how important the emperor is but what did the average farmer think about this what did the average merchant think about this and did the emperor actually affect their daily lives and that's a, a very good question there it wasn't wasn't that the whole point of nobunaga and um, trying to expand his empire because there used to be a lot of different clans or whatever um, around japan and and he he was basically you know he started with his in central japan mm -hmm. and tried to expand that so then Japan could be unified in that sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very much like how history is actionable, how power is actionable. Okay, mm. uh, you tell me to do something, can you make me? Yeah, exactly. So if we're looking at people like Lady Eboshi, many people might think, oh, well, there is a woman in charge of this community. And I, I asked Paula Curtis how unusual something like that might be. Women did absolutely work and in some case in some cases lead communities or families particularly earlier in the medieval period uh, and commoner women in particular are much more involved than say elite women in, in some cases in uh, you know, everyday working in a sense outside of the household, which is something we know about women who are merchants, for example, uh, or also artisans. Uh, but would they be doing this heavy labor of casting? I actually have no idea because it's not commented on in any of the caster documents like metal production or things like that. And so I think that there are some liberties that are taken to put those peoples at the forefront, uh, despite the fact that we may not find it entirely historically accurate or we may not be able to point to historical documents that verify it. But I think that the movie does point to those question marks in the film itself. I, I feel like the idea here is much more that somewhere like Iron Town is much more plausible than it is like a real place. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, it it doesn't necessarily concern me that much. That much, to be honest, that it it didn't happen. I guess what's probably, I guess now here now being like educated on like the setting and the background of it. I guess it's. I guess that was just. I mean, I got, I'll, let me ask you a question. Why do you think it was portrayed in the way it was? Why do you think Miyazaki did take those differences? Personally, I think it's because of his love of like Amino's work, particularly he loves to look at how minorities interact. And one of those big minorities that are central in Iron Town is specifically those suffering from leprosy or something called Hansen's disease. Uh, so here's a little bit. Paul Curtis was kind enough to talk to me a little bit about medieval leprosy. 
Um, you do have, you know, communities of lepers uh, that are, for example, they, they are outcasts in a sense. So I think that their kind of centrality to the community and I'm not an expert in, in uh, communities of lepers in this period, but they are, you know, seen in, for example, uh, emakimono as kind of on the periphery, and they are kinds of outcasts. But that said, you know, its temples engage with them quite a bit because it's considered uh, a pious act to have charity towards leper communities, to prepare uh, baths for them at temples at certain times of the year or regularly. So there are those elements where they're not totally excluded from communities, but kind of the centrality that they're given in Irontown, to me, seems a little bit unusual because, you know, this is something where they are considered uh, in pre-modern culture in Japan as this kind of embodiment of Buddhist defilement, right? Just quickly, so everyone knows what leprosy is, because it very much has this kind of big, like, scary image. But leprosy or Hansen's disease is a chronic infectious disease that's caused by a specific bacteria. It mainly affects skin and the nervous system. So many people end up damaging themselves or opening basically pores and stuff and not being able to like heal properly. The disease is now curable. It wasn't at the time. And very much uh, lepers were viewed in things like Buddhism, especially as a kind of karmic punishment for something bad you did in the last life you were given leprosy in this life it's actually very hard to catch leprosy it takes a huge amount of like basically contact with the individual you have to be genetically susceptible to it there are some things that say that up to 95 percent of the population are actually unable to properly catch leprosy oh interesting i did not know that i didn't know it was that not contagious yeah. yeah, I thought it was like I thought it was like some super some superhero version of a disease that you like you look at someone you might catch it. That was literally my assumption. <laughs> general assumption. So that was, that was well, that was how it was portrayed in films, right? When someone had leprosy and you like they would come up to you and you would like it is accurate to the perceptions that people would have of the time. So very much them being like on the edge, the periphery of society. This is almost universal uh, around the world. The final minority group we're going to talk about today are the people that our hero, Ashitaka, come from. They are the Imishi. A lot of this focus comes from Amino and his work. And here we're going to hear from the last time from Dr. Curtis. Throughout his work, you know, Amino was pushing back against this uh, very entrenched idea of homogenous Japanese-ness and was trying to highlight just how many different peoples made up the archipelago then and now. And so having incorporated that is really a fantastic element. When you watched the movie for the first time, what did you think when you saw like the village mm -hmm. at the beginning? Did you think this was just like classical Japanese medieval village or? Yeah, I just thought it was just like, okay, well, it's just a, an example of a village that would exist during that mm -hmm. time frame. This is maybe a problem for like a Western viewpoint, but I'm going to define some terms here quickly. Paul Curtis said there, said Yamato people. Yamato people is what we think of as the main Japanese culture. It was based on the imperial power around the Yamato Plain, which is where Nara is. It's east and south of Osaka and Kyoto. And this is like the traditional group of people that we associate with being Japanese in the West. However, 
they were not the only people that lived on the archipelagos that make up Japan. Specifically, early in their history, there were those known as the Imishi on the main big island of Honshu. Imishi literally means barbarian, like as in someone I cannot understand. They're sometimes just called hairy people. And there was basically a lot of fighting during the 8th and 9th century uh, to essentially colonize their lands to kill them or basically uh, absorb them into the larger Japanese culture. It's depicted in the movie as almost like a standout Imishi village. They would have all been wiped out or basically incorporated into major Japanese culture by the Muromachi period. Yeah. Again, there's so much learning I'm doing today. It's ridiculous. I guess that's why... the the choice of showcasing a, a particular group of people is important. I guess it's the same. I mean, if we knew if you picked like a particular group of ostracized people from like a Western perspective or a West African perspective, mm-hmm. would probably have more knowledge of that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas again, because we, because obviously like we just answered, oh, just yeah. a normal village, but now adding that context in, it just adds that, that conflict between between that the village and the powers that be at the time it, it adds that additional layer of conflict in so that's that's interesting that's interesting specifically we're gonna hear now from caitlin ugaretz about the amishia that portrayed in princess mononoke there are a lot of elements from other indigenous groups and time periods folded into the amishi as the stone in princess mononoke for example the tower that um, Ashitaka rides to in the beginning of the film um, comes from the Jomon period, which is like thousands of years earlier than the Emishi. And we can tell from the patterns on their clothing in the village that some inspiration was taken from the Ainu, um, who are the indigenous people of Ezo, which is now known as Hokkaido, and which was not part of um, Japan <laughs> until the the 1800s when it was um, colonized by the Japanese. Any last notes on this idea of Japan as not this huge monolith of one culture? It's it's something that was I probably knew I probably I probably thought that but I just didn't know how I just didn't know how I knew that okay there was obviously because just like common sense would say no country is just one thing. But I had no idea of just how it it played, how it was it was split until until this podcast and give me that additional additional knowledge there. It's not, I mean, again, in anime, I just thought that was just the way it was. But it's not surprising to me. So there would be obviously some different customs and so on and so forth. Particularly, the different peoples that are still prominent now are the Ainu in Kaido and also uh, Ryuku people in Okinawa. These are the main like people who want recognition for themselves as minorities until very recently the Japanese government have not been very forthcoming. It's quiz time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do it as a team. We'll do it as a team. We'll do it as a team. So number one, name two of the four periods of Japanese history that Princess Mononoke takes elements from. So Ed, you're supposed to be listening. So, so when you were listening to this podcast, so the Momoshiki, Momoshiki, Chiki, um, I'm, I'm probably butchering the name. Muromachi. Um, What's number two then? Go on, Ed. Come on, we're a team. 
uh, <laughs> a lot earlier. Uh, I can't remember the name. I. So the ones that mentioned are the Jomon period, which is a kind of Neolithic, and also the Heian and the uh, Nada period are the ones that are like very big. I'll give you half a point. I'll give you half a point. Take half a point. We'll take half a point. Question two. What is the name of Japan's religion whose traditions are featured heavily in Princess Mononoke? Shinto. Number three. What is the name of the deities that people worship in Shinto? Kami. Number four. Kami is also the Japanese name for what animal? Wolf. Number five. This one's difficult. What what form of wood do you need to burn to melt iron sand and make ingots? Oh. Was it moktan? No, th- those are the little slips. That's a good guess. Charcoal. It's charcoal. Oh my oh, gosh. Oh, you're kidding me. That was a cheeky one. You threw that curveball in yeah. there. I've done some nasty questions here. Name one of the group of artisans that Dr. Curtis mentions as being an example of people ruining the land and preventing farming. Iron workers. Iron workers, no? Iron workers, you're close. They didn't work on iron. Her example. What? Copper? Copper, yes. The other group of artisans were makeup makers. What was the name of the social historian that influenced much of Miyazaki's work? If you can get either of his names, I'll give you the point. No, I I meant to write that guy's name down. (laughs) It starts with A, right? It does start with A. It's not Amino, is it? No. It is Amino. Yes! High five, high five, high five, high five. Nice. Amino Yoshihiko. Um, And then number eight, what was the disease that the individuals are implied to have suffered from in Iron Town? Leprosy. Yeah, leprosy. Very nice. What group of people did Ashitaka belong to? Oh my gosh. I just... Oh, oh, it's on my tongue. Oh my gosh. It is the Emishi. Emishi, come on. I knew that. I knew that. Oh, I knew that as well, which is barbarian, isn't it? Final question. Can you make it back with this? What group of indigenous people live in what is now called Hokkaido, which used to be called Ezo? The indigenous people of Hokkaido. The Ainu, 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 Ainu. Correct. Yeah. Well done, Solo. (laughs) How many did we get? I actually don't know. Editing John will put that in now. Six. And Do you think you learned a bit more about Japanese history now? A hundred and twenty thousand million billion percent. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Tons. Okay, so where can we find you guys? Yeah, so you can find us on superanimepodcast.com. Uh, if you go there, you can um, have a link or there'll be um, a link to all our socials on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. TikTok, and we do also have a YouTube channel, Super Anime Podcast. So if you want to subscribe there, we'd really appreciate it. By the way, it is super with three U's. Yes, thank you very much. We'll also have all the links in the podcast description. We have more information on our website, which is www.japanhiddenhistorypodcast.com. That also includes the full interviews with Dr. Paula Kurtless and Caitlin Ugaretz. If you want to hear a bit more about what they have to say about Princess Mononoke. You can also read some articles that we have, such as ones on Yasuke and Seven Samurai. And of course, we are also on all the relevant social medias. We are on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel and all those lovely things that you can find in the description. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. But make sure you tune in next week as we look at one of the most beautiful and historic animes I think I've ever seen. And that is The Heike Story. So see you then.